Current Events Minisode. My name is Tessa Martinez, and I am an undergraduate student here at ASU studying sustainability. The previous Future Cities episode revolved around urban agriculture within Phoenix, and I have with me here Jason. Summer. Hello. Hello, Jason. He is a graduate research fellow with the Urban Resilience to Extremes Research Network. Jason has a master's in natural resource management from the University of Connecticut. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Physics from Drake University and a Bachelor's in Arts in Geology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. He is studying flood exposure and vulnerability in cities, focusing in particular on how wetlands can be incorporated into urban drainage networks to protect against flood risks and provide other ecosystem services to urban populations. Most of Jason's work focuses in Valdivia, Chile, where he is currently. So let's get started with our first topic. Our first article is from an article in The Modern Farmer written by Lindsay Campbell on Phoenix trying to get rid of their food deserts. And according to this article, three years ago, the city of Phoenix pledged to eliminate all of their 43 food deserts by 2050. They suggest this by increasing urban agriculture and establishing new farmers markets. And so I thought this was interesting because I had learned in a previous class that I had taken that farmer, the idea of farmer's markets are nice but create, because it's creating a connection between the farmer and consumer. But farmer's markets are often thought of as only benefiting the wealthier population of people in the area. So I wonder how much these plans will really benefit those that are most affected, negatively affected by the food deserts. And um, my question for you, Jason, is... Based off of your conversation and our previous episode and your general knowledge on food deserts, what do you think Phoenix could be doing more of to reach this goal? Uh, yeah, so I guess I should first clarify that I am in no way an expert on urban agriculture, but uh, now having done two episodes on it, I guess I've thought about it uh, maybe a bit more than, than some people. Um, and I would say that, I mean, Phoenix is going to have to contend with some some issues of ownership over these gardens and you know who is dealing with the expertise and who's actually going to be growing these things and I think who is this person Roseanne Albright the city's uh, environmental programs coordinator of Phoenix uh, who's mentioned in this article brings up some you know good points about who is going to be doing it who has the expertise uh, and so forth and I think that is uh, going to be critical in establishing the the actual effectiveness of and the reach of these urban gardens, because as you mentioned, um, farmers markets in particular can be kind of pricey and kind of bougie, and don't necessarily target the the small people around them. But that of course does not mean that it has to be that way. And uh, simple community gardens, where there's not really the sort of um, for-profit motive involved in it, but it's really kind of more of a true, just the, the, the local individuals are the ones growing it and the local individuals are the ones distributing it, um, could theoretically help take care of, of some of this. Uh, but then of course, like the reason you're in a food desert in the first place is likely because you have some tie to a poverty metric uh, that is to say, like people who live in food deserts tend to be of lower socioeconomic status uh, in a couple of different ways. And usually if you are of low socioeconomic status, 
uh, you may not have the time and the expertise to actually go out and do the sort of gardening work. Um, people who are working like two or three jobs or have children or are taking care of somebody who then now have this extra burden to go and take care of a local community garden are obviously probably not going to uh, be very happy about that um, and, or rather are just not going to buy into the program whatsoever. So this is to say, uh, I think, you know, the ownership regime uh, can, can kind of potentially aid in, in actually making this food accessible to other people. But there are other socioeconomic factors such as poverty, um, such as, you know, actual free time to do the sort of work that I think need to be addressed as well. And of course, that is dealing with a much larger and more complicated sort of economic system that is not necessarily addressed by these sort of food gardens. But this is kind of a way, and this is, you know, kind of the future of how when you really need to start thinking about these sorts of problems, like it, it goes way beyond the, the individual garden itself, but has its problem has its roots in these much more complicated systems. So it makes sense in dealing with the more complicated systems, because uh, otherwise you're just going to repeat the same issues. Yeah, and I think something interesting about uh, what you're talking about is that the general the general person has limited knowledge on how to actually farm. Oh yeah. So that kind of transcends, you know, socioeconomic status too, where it's like no one knows how to farm nowadays. So even if, I mean, maybe if people had the time, more time, you know, in their busy schedules, they might learn. But I think a lot of us, I mean, myself included, I have no idea how to farm. I can't. I can't keep a succulent alive, so. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's this, the skills gap, or not the skills gap, but rather just the, the lack of skills uh, in urban populations with regard to, to farming is a problem. And of course, not really that surprising. I mean, part of the reason they're living in the city is because they probably had to flee uh, a more agrarian setting because there were you know, better jobs or opportunities. My own family has a, a weird history with this where all of my dad's side of the family uh, live on the ancestral farm that we've had since like the 1860s out in Missouri. Oh, awesome. uh, but my dad uh, was raised in the city uh, because he was adopted by his aunt. So he didn't get the farm skills. So the family farm skills that everyone else has uh, did not get passed to me in any way. Uh, so <laughs> I am a very urban creature from a very recently agricultural like sort of lineage but I, I could not tell you anything about gardening. Uh, my dad yeah. does some amount of gardening in a very small plot that we have, you know, at, at my family's house, but that's really the extent <laughs> of it. I, I totally have lost that skill. And it takes time. I mean, both it takes time and trial and error and uh, probably some dedicated teaching on how to actually to, to do all of this, which of course are other barriers to, to deploying in urban agriculture. Um, you know, at this kind of Absolutely. scale, we're dealing with like what forty-two different neighborhoods or something. Forty-three, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's definitely true. It requires an investment um, and continued investment because you can't just go out and yeah. teach people once. Uh, people are going to drop out. People are going to come in to the program depending mm -hmm. on various community dynamics, and you need to have someone there who actually knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Probably, yeah. I mean, not that you can't learn this as an adult and. Of course you can, but like, I also feel like it needs to start at a fundamental, like, learning level. Yeah, I feel like I, I have heard about and even seen in a couple of schools programs where they have children going out and doing like little gardening tasks. But, you know, again, That's if awesome. I learned that at age seven, 
I'm certainly not retaining that now at age 33. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure we've all done that whole field trip where we go to the dairy farm and milk yep. a cow. And- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not an expert at any of that in spite of having done yeah. it once. <laughs> but yeah, no, I start early and, you know, keep reasons for people to do it. Uh, it was probably the best way to go about it. But. Absolutely. So Jason, what is Valdivia Chili's urban agriculture like? Do they have, do they have any urban agriculture? Um, are there food deserts? Is it a problem for them? Or I know you mentioned foraging is bigger in Valdivia. Yeah, so uh, I guess a little bit of background on the sort of bio geophysical uh, setting of Valdivia. It's again, a temperate rainforest situation. So similar to the uh, Pacific Northwest, like um, Seattle, Vancouver, uh, what is that island that's up there? I, I'm, all I can remember is Victoria. Cut this, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a temperate rainforest setting and there are a lot of natural edible plants in the region, a lot of berries, um, stuff that I've never seen anywhere else and probably will never see anywhere else, um, but could probably be grown in a place like Seattle or Vancouver or something. Um, but so there's a lot of natural foraging. There's a lot of invasive food as well. Like blackberry has really taken over good portions of the city. So I do work in the wetlands as was mentioned previously, but I can grab a snack anytime I want when I'm in the wetlands because the blackberry is just overgrowing and is not being taken care of. But you know, so problems and benefits of having these invasive species in other places. But then in terms of the, the gardening situation, it really depends on who you are and where you live, uh, because of course the apartment dwellers don't exactly have as much opportunity. And I don't really know that I've seen community gardens. I have gone to people's houses and have found them growing plants in their backyard. And like, you know, some people have these little greenhouses that they've even set up really, really tiny. And, you know, just a couple of plants that they can grow in there. But, um, it's also a very short summer period. We really get like eight to nine months of rain down here, like hard rain. Uh, and so a lot of things that you would normally plant in the soil just end up getting mold and, and sort of rot. Uh, so you have to be really careful about what you can plant down here. So this is to say community gardens, uh, not so common as far as I can tell, but individual gardens, not uncommon. Uh, Speaking about access to fruits and vegetables, though, I would say, honestly, access is really good. Between the good public transportation system, I mean, we have a system of buses down here, but then there's also a system of these sort of cars that drive around called colectivos. They're kind of like, I don't know, think of them like taxis with more or less defined routes that come in addition. So, And they cost really about the same. It's really about like 80 cents per ride, 70 cents per ride or something like that. It's very reasonably priced. And then like fruit stands are, are everywhere. It's common to find people who just have like a little cart set up or you have like your neighborhood grocery store that is really mostly just fruits and vegetables. Um, there are definitely large supermarkets, but um, I've, I read in a tourist guide a while back uh, about Chile in general, that they place high value on the freshness of the food. And I think that definitely comes through between buying or between being able to buy fresh bread pretty much anywhere 
that is you know baked at all hours of the day to having access to uh, seasonal fruits and vegetables. Um, I, I think the access here is, is great. And the cooking is still very much focused on uh, like fruits and vegetable usage in relatively simple productions, um, which I think is probably lends itself to, you know, both the style and kind of motivating people to keep buying uh, vegetables in this manner. Yeah. Valdivia sounds like paradise. <laughs> uh, it's great. I love it. Uh, painted a wonderful uh, picture. Um, so this kind of brings us nicely into our next topic, which is just us talking about this company, this really cool company um, based out of Phoenix called Agriscaping. And yeah, I thought it would be a good idea to end this mini so by talking about it, just because it's a local Phoenix business that's making a difference in the urban agriculture sector here. And this is a business whose mission is to improve local food access and sustainability by transforming landscapes into elegant, eligible, or not eligible, edible food gardens, easily managed with the help of online tools, education, and professional support. And the way this agriscaping works is they, it's basically a service where they design these food gardens in your yard or in you know, um, whatever area or like businesses, they design these food gardens with the help of microclimate science and technology. And they really tailor these gardens to the microclimate that this area that they're growing the food is going to be in. Um, I think they've done one in downtown Scottsdale and some of the restaurants use the produce that they grow, which is pretty cool. And I just think it's really interesting because when most people think about urban agriculture, they think of community gardens and we live in such an individualistic society here in um, the United States that I feel like it's aside from not having the knowledge of farming, it's also kind of a turnoff for some people. I think um, the idea of having to share a garden, you know, with everybody in your neighborhood or wherever it is you live. Yeah, there is um, like a, a real mistrust <laughs> that people have with communities, I think, in the United States. I'm always like, I don't know, probably similar to like, if someone wants to be, this is a, a silly example, but I mean, if someone says that they uh, want to start being like gym buddies or something like that, then uh, I don't know, more often than not, I've ended up being the person who's just like, all right, well, let's go. And the other person is like, well, I'm kind of not feeling it today. I think people are probably just shying away from you know, I ultimately don't want responsibility for an entire like community garden if people aren't showing up and like mm -hmm. doing the work, um, which may mm -hmm. be part of it. Uh, I could really only speculate. Absolutely. It's not like I've ever had this offered to me. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about some group projects that I've had, yes. you know, in, in school. And I'm usually the person that if luckily I've, I've really lucked out with some awesome group members while I've pursued this undergraduate degree. But you know, I definitely have been in groups where people haven't contributed and then it just all falls on you. And so, uh, yeah, that could be, that could be something that people Free are thinking. Free ridership. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but there, yeah. there are good systems and you can kind of figure out ways to, to goose people to actually do the work. And this is, you know, how communities are actually built, having a sort of shared goal and something to rally around. Uh, so yes, on one hand, I could kind of understand why people wouldn't want to, but on the other hand, you know, you get to know your community. Yeah, and my question to you on this topic is uh, that this is just one of the ways that people are addressing urban agriculture issues. 
but do you know of any other interesting ways that people are addressing this? Yeah, so we talked a little bit uh, about foraging and the only thing that really came up to, or came up in my mind um, when you sent me this website was kind of this, I, for, I really wish I had been able to find this article, but there is a person who uh, gives tours basically on how to do sort of urban gathering. And I think he does it in Scottsdale, perhaps even in Old Town Scottsdale. And for people who aren't in Phoenix, it's like a, a pretty dense urban area. It's not, you know, like tall buildings or anything like that, because there's very few places in Phoenix that really have uh, tall building features. It's very flat and spread out. But, um, you know, a lot of pavements and the, the natural landscape of the uh, Sonoran Desert, of course, is not necessarily that conducive to, to growing plants that people would think of as being edible, but there is still quite a few. Anything from herbs that you can gather to some invasive species that actually bear fruits in one form or another to even the fact that the, the cacti, like prickly pear, uh, bear a fruit um, called a tuna that is also edible. But I mean, there's, I was amazed reading this article about how many things you could pick up in like just a couple of blocks if you just know what you're looking for. Um, so this is to say, Yes, I think uh, if you can find the right kind of weirdo who has great sort of urban ecology or urban uh, naturalist identification ability, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of good opportunities to get people to actually start thinking about growing food locally or what food is already growing locally around them. So this concludes our mini-sode on urban agriculture. Thank you so much for taking the time to record this with me today, Jason. Yeah, glad to be here. The Future Cities podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.